0: Hello, class, and welcome to another episode of the Basic Christian Doctrine Class Podcast. Today we're going to be going over Lesson 3.2, continuing to discuss atonement by looking at several texts of theologians who are exploring these different atonement models. So if you haven't yet, you'll probably want to read the Ignacio A. the George Florovsky, uh, and the T.F. Torrance texts before you listen to this podcast. And ideally, you'll want to have them either open on your computer or printed off in front of you, if you're able. Those texts can be found on Canvas. It's only been a couple of minutes since I recorded our last podcast episode. I've recorded both this morning. Um, got hungry with all the talk about burritos, and the only thing I could find in my office was a Nutrigrain, which prompted for me the question of whether a Nutrigrain would count as a burrito. Both have that grain-based exterior wrapping with the inside tastier food component, I decided the nutri wouldn't count because it wasn't a tortilla, but that led me to question whether or not a tortilla filled with fruit would count as a burrito. So I'll leave you with that deep question for you to analyze once this podcast is over. Those are the sorts of things I think about when there are no students to interact with and I sit alone in an office for a week Um uh, That's my state of mind. If you've got deep questions like that, feel free to share them with the class, and we'll see whose questions are the best. On a side note, I think I'm much better at lectures than at podcasts. My efforts at entertainment are frankly just bizarre. So let's stop entertaining and start learning course content. Hopefully you've paused and gotten those documents up. I want to start by walking us through several key points in each of these texts. The one I'm going to treat most briefly is T.F. Torrance's work. I want to start by explaining on page 120 this idea of an expiatory sacrifice. That term expiatory or expiation is not explained by Torrance as clearly as I think he could. That word simply means it is a sacrifice that does away with the effects and consequences of sin. So in this case, he particularly has in mind guilt and judgment that are a consequence of our sin. But Christ is a sacrifice who takes away guilt and judgment. That's what expiatory means. Flip over to page 123. I want to point out one other feature of his text here. This is the second paragraph under the Roman numeral two heading. Torrance writes, The atoning death of Christ is justification in that, and then going down two lines, here, there is offered to God a righteousness, a holiness, a perfect obedience, completely in accord with God's own righteousness. Here, Torrance is connecting the atonement with the doctrine of justification, which I mentioned briefly in the last class. Next week, you'll have an audio lecture on justification, but in brief, it is the idea that Christ's status and his merit are counted as ours. This is why we can be counted as sons and daughters of God. This is why we can be told, well done, good and faithful servant, when we die, because the good work of Christ counts as ours, and because our sin has counted as Christ's. And so that righteousness of God that Christ offered is perfect, it counts as mine, is what Christians claim. This illustrates the fact that I also touched on last class that each of these models of the atonement are situated within the larger system of theology that we're discussing in basic Christian doctrine. I shared how each doctrine was rooted in the doctrine of the Trinity Excuse me. Each model of the atonement is rooted in the doctrine of the Trinity and in the doctrine of the hypostatic union, but here we see how it unfolds into doctrines like justification. We will make more connections as we go. For now, those are the only things I want to point out in your Torrance reading. Instead, I'm going to turn to George Florovsky. Florovsky is an Eastern Orthodox theologian originally from Russia who, during the reign of the Soviet Union, moved to the United States and actually taught for a time at Harvard. Florovsky explains to us here a model of the, or a version, excuse me, of the Christus Victor model of the atonement. And he does so by making particular connections with the idea of what death is. So this is a theological analysis of death on the basis of a Christus Victor model. Today's texts by Florovsky and Eya Korea are prime examples of the sort of work that I'm looking for in an application paper. Now, both of these men that we've read have their PhDs, both are professors of theology, so I don't expect something this substantive from any of you in your application paper. But I do want you to pay attention to these texts as illustrations of the sort of things that we can do when we apply a doctrine. a particular circumstance that we might face in our life, in our involvement in a church, or in our careers. And this is what the prompt of the application paper is asking you to consider. So, I want to point out several features of the text. On page 105, the top of the first paragraph... Florovsky explains the first aspect of death from a theological standpoint. Florovsky says in Christian experience, death is first revealed as a deep tragedy, as a painful metaphysical catastrophe, and as a mysterious failure of human destiny. And I think this is important to name because sometimes well-meaning Christians knowing that there is a heaven and an afterlife and a resurrection of the body, will say to someone who has experienced a loss, it's okay, they're in a better place. Or have hope, they can be in God's presence now. And those things are true. But they can have the negative effect of shutting down legitimate grieving. Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus. Death is a tragedy, and that must be named. But Florovsky gives some specific details concerning how it is a tragedy. And the two phrases he uses are a painful metaphysical catastrophe and a mysterious failure of human destiny. What does he mean by these terms? Well, the metaphysical catastrophe, that word metaphysics, comes from a book that the philosopher Aristotle wrote. And it was a book that was typically copied with his book on physics. So this book was called the Metaphysica, the with physics book. That's where we get this word. A bit arbitrary reason for calling it metaphysics. But this book dealt with fundamental questions What is the nature of reality? How do we know things? What is human nature? And these are the sorts of questions that metaphysics addresses. So a metaphysical catastrophe is a fundamental catastrophe concerning the basic nature of what it means to be human. Later on page 106, Florovsky clarifies that it is a catastrophe because the whole man dies, to use his phrasing. He says, man is organically composed of body and soul. Sometimes we Christians have a tendency to devalue the body, as if it's something like an outfit or some clothing we put on for a time, which our souls will one day be freed of in God's presence. But historically and biblically, it is better to understand humans as both body and soul. When God made Adam and Eve as embodied beings, he said it was very good. We are intended to have a body, which is why the Bible teaches that the final state of human beings is a embodied resurrection. When we die, we immediately are with the Lord in heaven as spirit, but this is not our final state. When Christ returns and comes again, our bodies will be restored to us in a perfected state. Florovsky says this shows that we are intended to be body and soul, but that is lost in death. He calls this corruption on page 107. You could think about a corruption of a computer file, for example. A corrupted file cannot be read because the script has fallen apart and can no longer be processed. In a similar way, human nature is corrupted by death because we have lost an essential component of what it is means to be human. So death is a metaphysical catastrophe, therefore it's a tragedy. It's also a failure of human destiny. God intended humans to live on earth in an Edenic context. In other words, in a context like the Garden of Eden, where we could walk with him without experiencing sin. Death destroys that possibility of earthly communion with God. And so it is a tragedy. This is the problem that the atonement must explain, according to Florovsky. But on page 108, at the top of the first paragraph, Florovsky explains how it is that Christ has transformed death. So it is not only a tragedy. It is tragedy, but not merely tragedy. He writes in the first line of this full paragraph Death is not just the self revelation of sin. So it doesn't just show us what sin is. Death itself is already, as it were, the anticipation of the resurrection. By death, God not only punishes, but also heals fallen and ruined human nature. Due to my sickness earlier in the class, we did not have the chance to talk about the doctrine of sin. We'll do that later on this semester. But in short... The doctrine of original sin says that every human being who is born has a corrupted human nature. We are naturally inclined towards sin. We can't prevent ourselves from sinning. Think here of the story of the lame fight that I once got in, that I shared in the last podcast episode. Our natures are trapped in sin, but through death our nature is corrupted, our body decomposes, and when that body is restored, Florovsky says that it is healed. It is no longer subject to that sin. And since the wages of sin is death, it will no longer be subject to death either. Florovsky goes on to explain that death can actually, therefore, also be a benefit. Because of the resurrection of Christ, Christ took on a human nature that was imperfect. He never sinned. With that nature, but when he died and was resurrected, he received a perfected human nature. And because he rose, we one day will rise as well because we are united with him. We'll talk about union next week. And therefore, the resurrection leads to our victory over death. So on page 110, he summarizes in a final paragraph. The ultimate reason for Christ's death must be seen in the mortality of man. Christ suffered death but passed through it and overcame mortality and corruption. He quickened death itself. By his death he abolishes the power of death. The dominion of death is canceled by death, O strong one. And the grave becomes the life-giving source of our resurrection. And every grave becomes rather a bed of hope for believers In the death of Christ, death itself is given a new meaning and significance. By death, he destroyed death. So here, a doctrine of the atonement, besides applying to our life because it explains how we are saved, it applies to our life because it transforms the way that we think about death. In the early church, pagans, so Romans, Greeks, Persians, they noted that Christians were willing to go into cities affected by plagues to care for others because they no longer feared death. And I think that can teach us something powerful in our current political and virological context. One final text, and that is Ignacio A. Correa. He is an example of a sort of modified version of the moral exemplar theory. I only want to point out one paragraph in his text on page 206. It's the second paragraph under the implications heading. A. A. writes, The historical character of the death of Jesus entails, to begin with, that his death took place for historical reasons. So what does he mean by that? Well, if you ask me why did Jesus die, I could tell you he died for my sins. Why did Jesus die? He died to restore me to a relationship with the Father. These are all true. But they're all also spiritual or theological explanations. They explain why the Son came and took on flesh intending to die. But they don't tell me why in history he was killed. Because you see, if Jesus was fully human, then he was fully in history and he will die for historical reasons in the same way that everyone else dies for historical reasons. It may be an accident. It may be a war. It may be a disease. It may be something else. But there are historical reasons for our death. Ea Correa goes on and says that the historical reason for Jesus's death is because of the historical life that he led, a life of deeds and words that those who, presented, who represented and held the reins of the religious, socioeconomic, and political situation could not tolerate. In other words, the Roman government and the Jewish Sanhedrin, so the religious leaders, they killed Jesus because he lived a life that challenged their power and their authority. This insight that Ea Correa presents here is central to a type of theology known as liberation theology. And I shared earlier in the class that if we pay attention to experience and read from different theologians of different genders, different economic classes, from different nations and generations, we can see where we might be missing an aspect of theology due to our own cultural location. I'm going to use that as an example today, By introducing you to something known as liberation theology, typically associated with Latin America. Ea Correa was a Salvadorian theologian from El Salvador. If you have your 3.2 PowerPoint, where you can pause to get it, I want to provide you some context on slide 4 about what was happening in El Salvador when Ea Correa wrote this argument. The social context in El Salvador was one of extreme poverty during this time, with a rise of totalitarian governments, not just in El Salvador, but across Latin America. One reason for this rise is the fact that the Cold War was happening. So we have the USSR trying to win over countries to communism, and the United States and certain countries in Europe trying to keep countries as capitalists. And Latin America, was close enough to the United States that U.S. government officials were very afraid of communism being in our backyard. So they were willing to support virtually any government that would oppose communism. Some virtuous governments were willing to do so. But unfortunately, oftentimes, governments that were quite totalitarian, so they would violate human rights, they would torture their citizens, they would institute military law, oftentimes these governments to get U.S. backing would agree to also combat communism. And it led to a situation where there were many corrupt governments in this region that didn't find any pressure from the international community to change. In this context, A Korea is living and writing. We see Salvadorians being tortured. We see them lacking basic human rights, and there are underlying ethnic tensions here. Many of the indigenous peoples of El Salvador were among the most poor who were being denied things like land rights. A certain number of Catholic theologians and priests and nuns began to speak up in this context. So on the slide on the left, you will see Archbishop Oscar Romero who was assassinated for speaking against the government. He was actually killed in the middle of presiding over the mass, shot at the altar. To his right, you will see the image of four different nuns, Maura Clark, Ita Ford, Dorothy Kazel, and Jean Donovan, each of whom were killed because of their work among the poor in El Salvador. These are actually four U.S. nuns who were on mission trip. Ignacio Ea Correa himself was a faculty member at something known as the UCA. I'll spare you my Spanish and give you the English translation, the University of Central America. And Ea Correa was killed, along with the vast majority of faculty members, for his teaching in saying that the life of Jesus should challenge us to reject totalitarian authorities and corrupt religious leaders. He and many other theologians were martyred for their beliefs. So when Eddie Korea writes this, it's not just an abstract theoretical exercise, but it's a practical theological response to genuine political problems he faces in his country. This is part of the movement of liberation theology. Let me explain to you several key points about liberation theology. This will be one of the most important components of this podcast for the exam. Liberation theologians like Aya Korea emphasized that Jesus was a poor and oppressed victim. Think about it. He was crucified, but he was innocent. He'd committed no crime. He voluntarily spent much of his adult life homeless. Matthew 8.20 says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was Jewish. In the context of the Roman Empire, this was an ethnic group that was looked down upon and often violently oppressed. And in the best of times, was given some freedom, but still occupied by foreign military forces. Jesus was tortured and killed by this military superpower. Eucaria says Jesus was himself poor and oppressed, like many of the victims in El Salvador during the 1980s when he wrote, 70s and 80s. Second major theme involves what's known as the preferential option for the poor. And what this means is whenever there is a social conflict, the church ought to pay particular attention to caring for the poor. Why? Well, Jesus could have come in any form. He could have come as an emperor, but he chose to come and be poor and be in solidarity with the poor as well. They would also point to God's historical act in the Exodus. God did not side with the empire of Egypt, but he sided with the enslaved nation of the Israelites. The church ought to do the same. This does not mean that the rich cannot be saved, nor that the church should pay no attention to the rich. But it does mean that when there is conflict, the church should make decisive action on behalf of the poor, even if this leads to death. It led to death for Christ and it led to death for Ea Correa, but there are those who carry on his vision in his name. Third, liberation theology tends to speak of a crucified people, and this vocabulary comes directly from Ea Correa. Korea means that poor and oppressed victims are like Christ because he was poor and oppressed. And because of this, if we want to understand what Jesus' human life was like, we should listen to those who are poor to gain insight. More than this, Korea emphasizes something known as orthopraxis, as do many liberation theologians. Orthodoxy is right belief. Orthopraxis is right action. The crucified people require us to take right action. In this case, we are called to take the crucified people down from the cross. In other words, whoever is victimized and tortured and executed, though innocent in our cultural context, that, Ea Korea says, is who we should be working to take care of to stop their torture and their victimization. Fourth and finally, liberation theology therefore understands God to be a liberator. He is our savior. He saves us from death. He forgives us our sins, but he is also a liberator. God is a God who raises victims from the dead, validating their worth and condemning those who crucify them. God works through history on behalf of the poor. That's a fundamental part of who God is, and therefore it's also a fundamental part of salvation. Salvation must include liberation from oppression and victimization and poverty. That is the example that Jesus teaches by the historical life that he led. So here again, we have a theologian taking a theological idea and applying it to a very complex and challenging socio-political situation. And this ideology did not remain at the level of ideas but was fleshed out in specific political activism and economic efforts, as well as in some restructuring of the church to be more effective in this context. So it serves as an example, as did Florovsky, of the sort of thinking that I want you to do in the application paper. I want you to wrestle with the question of how is it that an idea that a Christian might believe could change the way that I truly live. And as a first step toward preparing for that assignment, this week's optional discussion forum is asking you to consider the application of these atonement models. Now, let me clarify. It is optional in that some of you may not participate, but it can still earn you credit towards your participation score. If you are involved in the discussions or in the optional Zoom meetings or in the group me. Chats or in direct communication with me, you will count as being active in the class. The more of them you do, the better off you are, though I understand many cannot participate in Zoom. But if you do none of them, your grade will suffer. So choose wisely, start thinking about that application paper, and have a good rest of your week. Until next time, this is your professor signing off from the Basic Christian Doctrine podcast. See you then.